Well, church, today we join with Christians not only from all over the world, but all throughout history to celebrate the birth of Christ, the wonder of what Mary encountered that first Christmas day. Uh, Because of that history, I want to lead us in prayer this morning before we open up God's Word together. And actually, uh, we often um, write the prayers that we use here at Harvest because prayer is just God's people talking to Him. On the other hand, God's people have been talking to him for a long, long time, and so I want to use today a prayer that was written by Puritans several hundred years ago. Brothers and sisters in Christ who have already walked on this earth and lived and died, but they were doing the same thing while they're here that we're doing now, beholding the wondrous glory of Christmas. So this is a Christmas prayer that was prayed in churches hundreds of years ago and continues to be today. I want to ask you to join me together as a church, as we too Praise God and thank him for the goodness of sending his son. O source of all good, what can we render to you for the gift of gifts, your own dear son? Here is wonder of wonders. He came below to raise us above, born like us that we might be like him. Here is love When we cannot rise, he draws near on wings of grace to raise us to himself. Here is power. When deity and humanity were infinitely apart, he united them in indissoluble unity, the uncreated and the created. And here is wisdom. When we were undone, with no will to return to him and no intellect to devise a way of recovery, he came, God incarnate, to save us to the uttermost. As man to die our death, to shed satisfying blood on our behalf, to work out a perfect righteousness for us. Oh God, take us in spirit to the watchful shepherds and enlarge our minds. Let us hear good tidings of great joy, and hearing, let us believe, rejoice, praise, adore, our conscience bathed in an ocean of repose, our eyes uplifted to a reconciled Father. Place us with the ox and donkey and camel and goat to look with them upon our Redeemer's face and in Him to account ourselves delivered from sin. Let us with Simeon clasp the newborn child to our hearts. Embrace Him with undying faith, exulting that He is ours and we are His. For in Him You have given us so much that heaven can give no more. Amen. Thank you, team, for leading us uh, in song. They will be back to lead us in song in just uh, a few moments after we have a chance to look at God's word together. So I want to encourage you, if you've brought a Bible with you, to go ahead and grab it uh, or turn it on or swipe left or whatever form your Bible is in, be it digital or paper this morning. We're going to spend a little bit of time together in Luke chapter 1, uh, the second book, uh, third, sorry, the third book of the New Testament, uh, right in the first chapter, as we look at, at part of the narrative story of the birth of Jesus. Uh, while you're turning there, uh, as Jordan appropriately said earlier, 2020 has been um, a crazy year, has it not? <laughs> uh, 
understatement of the year. Anybody eager to turn the calendar over and put this one behind us? Yes. <laughs> Getting a rousing amen. We almost became Pentecostal as a church right there. We're just like throwing up the hands. Yes. <laughs> right. Get rid of this year. Um, I don't know about you, but I enjoy a humor, especially when it's cleverly and creatively deployed, particularly in times of stress. Sometimes it can be overdone, but, but clever humor, sort of like, you know, clever, snarky comments or really, really fun internet memes can be a great way to process stress. And so as this year draws to a close, I wanted to share with you a, a couple of my favorite 2020 internet memes, of which there have been probably countless thousands this year. Um, the craziness that everybody has been experiencing and feeling has, has spawned a great deal of uh, clever snark and funny internet memes. Uh, here's just some of our favorites. A lot of them are about our own experience in 2020, like this one, right? Hanging with friends in 2020. It's like, I want to explain it. I don't have to explain it. It says it all, right? <laughs> what is this bubble thing? We're all used to it now, right? This is what we call friendship. Um, or I like this one in particular. This is the official mascot of 2020. He always wears a mask, compulsively washes hands, and the letters of raccoon rearranged spell corona. <laughs> I got to admit, that one made me laugh out loud. When I, that was a literal LOL, not just one of those. Yeah, that's good. That's good. A lot of the memes kind of dealt with um, our experience of 2020. Like there's this whole series of memes, you know, if 2020 was a blank and you fill it in, like I love this one, if 2020 was a slide at a playground. That's painful to just, yeah, just even look at. But it communicates, right? <laughs> you know, um, or like this one, you know, if 2020 were a pinata. That is a hornet's nest if you can't quite see the picture closely, but you just wander into this year doing the normal thing, and boy, it sure bites you, doesn't it? And maybe just one more meme in keeping with our, our Christmas theme. It's like, if 2020 is going to, can we just celebrate Christmas, or is that going to mess it up too? And I, I particularly appreciated this picture. <laughs> That's not even a meme. It's just a picture of an airplane, you know? I love the fact, I don't know if you can see it, but there's a guy in the foreground who's walking by. I think he's just, you know, brushing his hair or something, but it looks like he's just going, oh, like poor Santa, you know? I mean, Santa got run over by a jet plane. I don't know. It's like, <laughs> what else could go wrong? I love to laugh because sometimes you just have to. You just have to. But we've had a lot to need to laugh about, right? It's been a tough year. It's been a tough year. Uh, this whole COVID pandemic obviously continues. Um, uh, of course, it happens to be a presidential election year, right? Always a divisive uh, time in our country. It seemed particularly divisive this last uh, election. Uh, we had all of the, the riots and the protests and, and all the uncomfortable conversations about racism that were taking place in our nation through the spring and the summer. Um, all of that stuff piles on. And of course, like the the hard stuff of life that always happens doesn't just go away, you know, because, you know, life doesn't just say, hey, this is a really hard year, so we're just going to, like, stop the cancer diagnoses, you know, we're just going to make sure you don't have to grieve the loss of a loved one or, or a lost job or a broken marriage or something, like, all of that stuff happens anyway, the stuff that normally grieves us, and then these other things just pile on top of it. Most of us relate to the feeling that we could use a little relief. Wouldn't it be great to get back to some semblance of normal. 
Or would it? Really? Toward the end of the year, I tend to get a little reflective, right? So I've been thinking about, like, would it really be great to get back to normal? Um, What is normal? I mean, like, was life in... I mean, some things will be nice. It'll sure be nice to not have to, like, wear a mask, you know, everywhere you go, right? To not have to be in a, in a bubble and, and, and distance from people. There's definitely some things when this is all over that that's going to be nice that that goes away. But, but was life in 2019 really such an ideal, utopian experience <laughs> that if I can just get back there, I will be totally happy? Most of us probably wouldn't say that. Maybe the peace, the contentment, the happiness that we're all longing for can't actually be found in a vaccine, although it will help. Maybe it can't actually be found in an election or a social justice movement, as important as all those things are, and they are important. But maybe they can't deliver on the promise of hope that we're really longing for. This past three Sundays as a church, We've worked through the New Testament book of Acts chapter 2 and we've seen that, that God actually has an agenda. Did you know that? Like God has an agenda. He's, he's after something. He's seeking to accomplish something with us throughout human history. And God's agenda is that he is, he's reconciling people to himself. The Bible tells us that's what we really desperately need is to be reconciled with God. And that's what Christmas is all about. The text of Scripture we're going to look at this morning from the end of Luke chapter 1 is a song of praise. It's actually structured as a poem. It's a um, song. It was literally sung uh, by an old Jewish priest named Zechariah when his wife Elizabeth gave birth to their son. Now, he was an old priest. His wife was old. They were long past the childbearing years, so it was uh, miraculous in and of itself that they were able to conceive and have a child together at this age. But when you read the narrative, there's far more going on here than just the fact that they had a, a baby, which was a huge deal in that culture in that day, long past the age when they would have expected to do so. The boy that that was birthed is the guy that we came to know as John the Baptizer or John the Baptist. John was a contemporary of Jesus. He lived at the same time. In fact, he was a relative of Jesus. And his job, his life's purpose, according to God, was to announce the meaning of Jesus' life and ministry. So in John's life, we find an explanation of the significance of Jesus' life. And so while, while Zechariah's song was prompted by the fact that you know, he and his wife had this baby and they are rejoicing over him, The song was prompted by the birth of his son John, but the song actually is not about his son John. The song is about Jesus. If you've got your Bibles, open to Luke chapter 1. I want to read our text. We're just going to let the Bible speak, let the words soak in, then we're going to back up and notice a couple things about them together that I think has, has usefulness in connecting us with God right now, today. So we get ready to bid farewell to 2020. Luke chapter 1, starting verse 67, we're going to go to 79. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, 
Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is God's word for us this morning. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your word. Speak to us now. Encourage weary hearts. Refocus our lives and help us to find the path of life you came to give. In Christ's name, for our good and your glory we ask. Amen. I want us to notice as we go through this briefly this morning, just three rays of hope that come out of this passage. It's a hopeful song. It's an exciting song. This father is rejoicing as we say not only over the birth of his own son, but over what that means in God's plan. It's a hopeful song. It's an encouraged song. A a weary, abandoned soul has found some respite and some joy. There's a message there for us today. Three rays of hope. First, the ray that that God is with us. He's not abandoned us. Secondly, the ray of hope that, that he has made a way for us to find life. And the last ray of hope is that he has then illuminated the path and shown us how to get to that life. The first ray of hope is that God is with us. God is with us. Notice that right away at the beginning of Zechariah's song here. Blessed be the God, uh, the Lord God of Israel. Blessed, that's, that's Old uh, Testament Jewish language for God be praised. I'm excited. Why is he so excited about God? Because, because he has visited and redeemed his people. He has visited his people. Now, that, that's a big statement for this guy to make at this point in time. And so understanding who is speaking and when he's speaking really helps add some context to what we just read there. Why wouldn't God visit his people? Isn't that what God does? Well, actually, no. That's not what God does, not from their experience. Zechariah was a first century Jewish priest. He was part of um, the Old Testament people of God, the ancient Israelites, who for generations... Literally a thousand years had passed since Israel's golden age under King David when God blessed them and they were a nation and they could worship freely and they had prosperity and blessing and life was good. That was so far back in their past. It was only a mere echo of stories told. Most of that thousand years since the golden age, the Israelites had spent in destitution, 
as pawns under the hand of powerful foreign conquerors. First came in the Assyrians, and then the Babylonians, and then the Persians, and then the Greeks, and then the Seleucids, and I probably skipped a few in there. And here they are now in his day under the Roman Empire. All of these godless reigning powers that don't care about them and keep them repressed and controlled. Man, we're dismayed at this past year for good reason. They were dismayed at the past thousand. That's the mindset. Imagine 2020 going on for 10 centuries. That's what it meant to be a first century Jew. Where is God in all this? Now, to be fair, God was not totally silent during that time. For the first 600 of that thousand years, God would send them prophets, which is good, right? I mean, God is at least talking to them. He's trying to communicate with his people. Unfortunately, most of what God had to say was not very fun to listen to back then. The words of God to his people through the prophets largely amounted to telling them that they were guilty of sin and the destitution they were suffering was their own fault because they had broken their covenant with him. They were sinners. They simply couldn't be good enough to get back in God's good graces and get back to the good life. But as if that was bad enough, that went on for about 600 years and then it stopped. And for the past 400 years before this day, God quit sending prophets. God even quit talking to them because he's like, you guys aren't listening. You're not listening. And so he went silent. Total silence. Silence isn't actually a thing. It's a nothing. Just a nothing. And when that nothing comes from God, that's devastating. 400 years. They felt abandoned. They felt God had turned his back on them. They felt God had given up on them. Their past was a terrible oppression. Their present was a discouraging pain. And there was no good reason to think their future would be even any brighter and so when Zechariah realizes God has visited us, that is huge. That's huge. Now, I said just a second ago there was no reason to think their future would be brighter. That's technically not true. There was only one reason. And it seemed pretty small most of the time, I'm sure. But there was a good reason. And the reason was the promises of God. The promises of God. Notice that language sprinkled throughout this prophecy, verse um, 70, for example. Um, he has raised up a horn of salvation as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. So there was this promise from the prophets that God was going to save his people despite their sinful failure. In fact, that, that language carries on throughout this whole time. Uh, verse 72 and 73, he came to show the mercy promised to our fathers to remember his holy covenant. That's a deal that God made with his people, a promise. And as if to drive it home even more, verse 73, to remember the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. What's going on here? What's going on is that no matter how badly they had been abandoned, they did have these, not even just hints or expressions of good intention by God. They had lock, solid, stock, sure promises, covenants, God swearing an oath over and over and over again that no matter how sinful you are, my people, I will save you anyway. Because that's just the kind of person I am. 
I'm a tender, merciful, saving God. I will save you, not because you deserve it, you don't. I will save you because I am a saver. I'm a mercy giver. And so on the one hand, he kept telling them, you're a mess because of your own sin. On the other hand, he kept telling them, but I will save you anyway. And those promises were all they had to hold on to for a thousand years, including 400 of total silence. But God isn't saying anything. I know, but he promised. But he isn't acting on it. I know, but he promised. Did they believe the promises? That was the question. Zechariah is remembering them here. He's remembering that God himself promised to fix the broken sinfulness of the human heart. In other words, he would make up for our inability to do the right thing all the time. And specifically, he said he'd fix our predicament by sending a Savior. The Hebrew word for that is Messiah the one who would, would come, the one person who would make it possible for us to do what we cannot do apart from him, to connect with God and experience with real, real life forever. So this, this first ray of hope is that, that God has kept his promise to come save us. He finally delivered on that promise. No matter how long it's been, no matter how painful it's felt, we are not abandoned and we are not forgotten. And this horn of salvation God raised up, that's a phrase out of verse 69, right at the beginning there. God has raised up a horn of salvation for us. That basically just means like blowing on a trumpet horn like they would before a king would come in. Here comes the king. It's the announcement that the king has come. Well, God is blowing the trumpet. I'm about to come and I'm about to make good on this promise. You know what that horn blast was? Do you know what the noise is that shattered 400 years of God's silence? It was the cry of an infant baby in a manger. That is the trumpet blast that announces God is finally here to make good on that salvation promise, the birth of Jesus. God himself became a man. Jesus' birth is the trumpet blast that says God has not abandoned us or forgotten us. Why is that so important? Because it is still God's trumpet blast today. Friends, do you ever feel abandoned by God? Have you ever felt abandoned by God? God, I'm not sure you're with me. I'm not sure you care. Maybe I'm not even sure you're there anymore because fill in the blank. Have you ever felt like God isn't listening? Or if he is listening to somebody, it's not you. How could you allow these horrible things to happen to me if you're there and you love me who has not asked those questions at some point? But has not every child asked the same question to their parents at some point? You see, God won't always be with us when and how we want him to be, but he will be with us when and how we need him to be. That's what he's promised. When you feel God has abandoned you, you can know he hasn't, and you know he hasn't because you look at that baby born in a manger and say, he's come, he's visited his people. Christmas is the great proof that God has not abandoned you or me. That's a great hope, but it's not the only one here. The first ray of hope is God has not abandoned us. He's acted on his promises, but the second ray of hope is that in coming, he has made it possible for us to find life. 
He's made it possible for us to find life. Now you see that here in Simeon's song and it's couched in terms that are very specific to the first century Jewish people, but the promise is universal and applies to everybody. Notice what he talks about here in this song. There's two aspects of the salvation that Zechariah thanks God for. The first is protection from oppressive enemies. You see that in verse 71, um, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hands of all who hate us. And then again down in verse 74, that we, being delivered from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear. There's this strong sense that there are people that are out to get us and they are getting us and God is going to save us from those mean bad people who are doing mean bad things to us. And again, that makes sense because as we've already said, that's been the history of the Jewish people for a thousand years up to this point in time. If you're somebody who's lived in a country like the United States as an ethnic minority, you immediately understand the kind of mindset that's being talked about here. You know what it's like to feel like you're part of a group that is in the minority and at best has been shunted off to the side, at worst has been directly taken advantage of, and that becomes part of the makeup of your worldview. And for those of us that are part of the majority culture, it's really helpful to listen to friends who have a different perspective just share that perspective. That's the perspective of God's people at this point in time. We have been oppressed. We have no future. So they look forward to freedom from the oppressive enemies, but secondly, he also looks forward to the forgiveness of sins. So he said down in verse 77, you will give a knowledge of salvation to God's people in the forgiveness of their sins. Now, you could read the Bible and notice those two things. Freedom from people who are oppressing you, I understand what that means. Forgiveness of sins, most of us have a pretty good idea that that has to do with God forgiving us for the wrong things we've done. It's a religious thing. It would be very easy to read the Bible and assume that those are two completely different and unrelated things. If we read the Bible that way, we would be wrong. We would be wrong. Because you see, in the context of the Old Testament, the logic of the Old Testament, sin leads God's people to the national suffering and disgrace that they were experiencing. One is the cause, one is the effect. They looked forward to deliverance from both, but you can't have deliverance from one without the other. That's, that's why Zechariah's song moves so seamlessly from being freed from oppression on the one hand to being freed from sin on the other hand because the two go hand in hand. And the message is clear throughout Scripture. Our sin keeps us from experiencing the life with God that we were made for and long for. I may not currently be part of a people group that is being oppressed by an outside nation. The details will look different, but the principle is always the same. As people, we suffer because we are sinners and we are broken. Sometimes it's our own sin that we're directly paying for. Sometimes it's other people's sin. Sometimes it's just a function of living in a world that is characterized by sin. So whether or not it is directly my fault, the fact is the Bible tells me I suffer and live in a broken world because mankind has turned its back on God and I'm part of that mankind. There's a strong ray of hope here. That's what God came to fix. You see, it can be so easy to long to be free from COVID restrictions. I can't wait. <laughs> I was just talking to a couple members of our church this past week and just talking about how good it was to be in each other's company, just to stand there for 10 minutes and talk to each other, even in our little bubbles and distanced. And I reflected on the fact that one of the crazy things about this pandemic is normally, the way normal people function, if you love somebody, you walk toward them, right? 
You get close to them. You physically, you give somebody a hug. You shake a hand. You give them an encouraging pat on the back or you uh, relationally walk toward them. You get involved in their lives. You care. You help bear their burdens. When you love somebody, you walk toward them and all of a sudden now that's been twisted on its head and we're being told if you love somebody, walk away from them. And it just, it's like gear grinding on gear that doesn't work. In the short term, we understand the pandemic reasons for it, but it's just messing us up at a deep level. It could be so easy to say, I just can't wait till we get away from that. Can't wait till we get away from being so afraid of getting sick that it starts to change and affect our lives in these ways. We can long for relational harmony, healing from illness, financial security, an end to the divisiveness we've endured for the past year. Friends, what are you most longing for right now? When does your heart just say, oh, I can't wait until, or I wish, or I hope? What? Whatever that thing is that you find yourself longing for the most experientially right now, it's probably a good thing. Yet the Bible says it is but an echo of the real life that God has for us and wants to give to us. Temporary security, temporary health in this world, temporary relational joy with family and friends, all good things. But they're only echoes of being around God's table in joy for eternity, face to face with him and with our family. That's what God came to do. He came to fix sin so that we can have that kind of life. The New Testament puts it this way. 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says that for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. That's Jesus. So that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. What the Bible is saying there is that there is a significant exchange that, that Jesus came to this earth to give. He came to give a gift, but you know what? He came not just to give something to you, he also came to take something from you. That's Jesus' mission. That's what John the Baptist was to announce to the world. He, he lived that sinless life that we all should live, but we can't quite pull off no matter how hard we try. We may sin less than we used to. We may sin less than that guy down the street. But if we're honest, who can say, I am free of sin, I'm the perfect person? No human being could say that, except when God became a human being and himself lived without sin. That's what Jesus did. And the great thing is he now offers that righteousness to us as a gift. You can be healed, you can be free, you can be declared righteous before God so there is no barrier between you and him. That's the gift he gives. But he also came to take something from us. When he went to the cross and died, he did that for us, in our place. So he was paying the penalty for the sins we have already committed. Our past sins, our present sins, even our future sins. He's paid for them all. And so he takes the debt that our sin creates before God from us and he pays it. And then he gives us the life that is offered to us because of his righteousness. It's like we're all freezing in the Arctic and we're desperately trying to huddle together and get somewhere to a warmer climb before we freeze or starve to death. We run into a towering cliff a thousand feet high. There's no way we can get over it without killing ourselves. 
The second ray of hope is like God owning the largest construction company in the world. And Jesus shows up with all of his surveyors and all of his tunnelers and his earth-moving equipment and he cuts a trail, switchbacks, up to a place where he just blasts the tunnel through. We, there's no way we could do it. He's got all the know-how and all the gear. There's now a way out. The second ray of hope is that he came to give us life. Freedom from the oppression that we experience, the sins for which we need forgiven. So he's not abandoned us. That's the first ray of hope. The second ray of hope is he's come to make a way, but you know there's one more ray of hope in this passage. And that is that he has also illuminated the way. He's illuminated the way. Jesus' birth is likened to a light shining in darkness in our last two verses, verses 78 and 79. It's likened to a sun rising after a long and dark and cold Night, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Have you ever been in a place where it was so dark you could not see an inch in front of your face? Anybody ever experienced that? I've experienced that a couple of times. Uh, one is when my daughter Elizabeth was younger. She and I went and hiked through the ape caves, the lava tube up on Mount St. Helens. Some of you have done that, or you've done lava tubes other places. You're underground, you're in this tube, you bring a light or a lantern or something, and at one point we stop and you turn it off, and it's like, I mean, that's darkness so thick, it's like you can feel it. It's oppressive. I'm literally waving my hand in front of my face, and there's just nothing. And you immediately are disoriented. You're, I mean, it's a tunnel. There's only one way you can go, but you're like, I'm going to, you know, how do I get out of here without a light? The other time I experienced that was my first trip to South Sudan a number of years ago. We're out in this incredibly rural place. No uh, electricity, no anything, anywhere near. The only thing they had was one little hut that had a single light bulb in it. It was attached to a couple of car batteries that got charged from a solar panel during the day. So you could flick on a light. <laughs> to eat the dinner meal for a couple hours a night, but that was it. So we're outside and we're all talking and it's like the sun goes down and suddenly I'm 10 feet away from a guy who's talking to me and I cannot see him. I was stunned being that far out in the rural area other than the stars in the sky. It was so dark you couldn't without a flashlight even get up and walk across the old compound that we were staying in without tripping and falling or running into a tree. That's the, the, the environment that, that first century Jews lived in, right? They didn't have generators and halogen lamps. <laughs> when the sun set, man, it was pitch black. You had candles and you had torches. You had fire. That was, that was it. That was all that you had. And if you're out there and the night is long and it's cold, you can't do anything. You can't harvest crops. You can't tend cattle. You can't build a building. You can't write, read, whatever it is you're doing. You can't do any of that at night. You're just waiting out the night until the day comes and the chill finally comes off and you can get up from outer, under your blankets and move about and see what you're doing. The dawning of day was like, ah, oh, life is starting again. That's what the Bible says the coming of Jesus is like. The light comes. You can see if Jesus blasted that tunnel through our proverbial cliff, it's wonderful that it's there, but it doesn't help much if you don't know how to get to it. This third ray of hope is not only has he provided the way out, he showed us how to get there. He showed us how to get there. When you get on a commercial airplane 
and you're getting ready to take off and the very nice flight attendants give up, get up to give that speech that we all listen to with such rapt attention, right? And what do I always say? In the case of an emergency and a power failure, what's going to happen? What happens? Lights. Where's lights? I thought the power went out. Honest question. This is actually like interactive. It's weird in church, I know. But this is okay. Like what happens? The power goes off and what do they say will happen? Lights will illuminate the path to what? The nearest exit. Which is where? You don't know. It might be behind you. Somebody does listen to that. Well done. Nicely done. Was that Beth? Somebody over there said that. Excellent. I want to fly with you next time. That way if there's a problem, I'll just follow you. Um, they're like, you know, you don't know, especially if it's dark, maybe the plane goes down and there's an emergency landing that's successful and you're out in the middle of nowhere and you're trying to get out of this plane and suddenly it's dark. Well, it's great that there's an emergency exit in the plane. That's a really good thing. If not, we've got a big problem, right? It's wonderful that they design these things with emergency exits in them, but if I can't get to it, what good does that do me? So what's more, I not only have an exit, I've got a light. All I've got to do is look down and follow the little illuminated arrows that will just, just follow me and you'll be fine. Then you can get out. This passage is telling us that's what the birth of Jesus is like. It's wonderful he came to make a way to get out of my sin problem, but what good does that do me if I don't know how to get there? His birth is like the sunrise, like light shining to those who sit in darkness. He's illuminated the path. The path of life leads to Jesus. He himself is life's great exit door. He actually called himself that at one point. He said, I am the door. (laughs) Anyone who enters by me will find life. That pathway looks a lot like this. It's to recognize Jesus, to repent of our sins, and rejoice in real hope. So this prophetic song, I think, is leading us to do. To recognize Jesus means to celebrate his birth as God's answer to your greatest need. Boy, that'll change your Christmas. That will change your Christmas. If this is what we do in the holidays every year, if this is just giving and receiving gifts, which is wonderful and fine, if this is just all of the stuff of Christmas, now modified, thank you, COVID pandemic, if that's what Christmas is, it can be enjoyable at its best, but at the end of the day, it just kind of happens and it's over. If you want to change your Christmas, celebrate it not just as a time to get together with family, a time to give gifts, a time to eat and celebrate, all those things are good, but celebrate it as God's answer to your greatest need to be forgiven and reunited with God who loves you in his tender mercy. Friends, if you're here this morning, either on our campus in either one of our two rooms or watching on the live stream, we are so glad you're here. There is nothing more we want you to experience than that, than experiencing the tender mercy of God for you. Maybe you've been, maybe you don't even really know what it means to follow God. Maybe you didn't even plan to come to church or tune into the service when you got up this morning. We are so glad you're here because God knows you. He cares about you. And he wants you to experience that tender mercy. That's why our church is here. We want to introduce people to the mercy of Jesus. But you know what? That's not an introduction we need once. It's an introduction we need a thousand times over. 
A lot of us have been walking with Jesus for years, even decades. We need to experience Christmas as God's answer to our greatest need, to experience the tender mercy of our God, forgiving our sins still and rejoicing in his provision. Recognize Jesus. That's the first step. The second step then is to repent of our sin. Once we recognize Jesus is God's answer to our greatest need, we then act on it. We then act on it. Repent is kind of a Bible word. Uh, Basically, it simply means we admit to God our sin and our guilt, and then we turn our back on our old way of living, and we follow him. That's actually what the word repent means. It's, It's a change of mind. It's a turning, a change of perspective. It simply means I admit to God that, yep, I'm sinful, I'm guilty, I need saving. You're right about me and my sin. I'm going to not pretend that that's not true anymore. In fact, I'm done with living for myself, by myself, and in my sin, and I am now living Jesus for you. It means we receive Jesus' death as in our place. You recognize he didn't just pay for the sins of the whole world when he died. He paid for my sins. I embrace that. I accept that. Lastly, recognize Jesus, repent of sin, and rejoice. Rejoice in real hope. Friends, we long to get out from under this pandemic. I do. I do. But Jesus is better than a vaccine. We long for companionship, but Jesus is better than a good marriage or healthy friendships. We yearn to be healed, but Jesus is better than physical health. This Christmas, let's dwell on God with us, not abandoned, the light of the world, which is our only source of real and lasting hope. When I ask the worship team to come back up, and we get to respond to God, the light of the world, in song. Let me pray for us before we do. Jesus, the miracle of God become man never ceases to amaze me when I stop long enough to think about it. We've had a lot of other things to think about this year. God, you know that. You've ordained it all. Nothing surprises you. But I confess, God, so often that we're thinking about anything but our deep need for you right now, this moment. And I pray, God, that you would reveal your tender mercy to each person who is here on our campus, who is watching this live stream. Help us to see and understand the need we have for you, the sins we need forgiven. Give us the heart, Holy Spirit of God, to simply admit that you're right and quit pretending. Simply ask you in prayer, Jesus, forgive me. Accept me. I fall on your mercy. May we be a people that celebrates Christmas, the true hope that we have more than anything else that we want or need. We have what we need. We have you. Receive the praise of a joy-filled people right now as we sing. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand with us, please?